Good morning. I am Sharon Stenkamp, and I have the privilege of reading God's Word to you this morning. So please stand if you are able. I'm going to be reading Matthew 15, 1 through 20 um, in the ESV. Uh, if you don't didn't bring your Bible with you this morning, there are some in the pews. Go ahead and uh, get a map and read with me. So Matthew 15, 1 through 20. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your traditions? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but with their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. The disciples came and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when you heard this, when they heard the saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Mike Fay, and I'm the lead pastor and elder here. And it's a privilege to be alive and upright this morning and with you. Um, I want to encourage you to join us for that reception with the Crawfords afterwards. And if you haven't met the Crawfords, they're great people, so you want to meet them. And if you haven't been around for very long, you probably don't know the whole story of the Crawfords. We'd love to hear that from you if you have time later on. But um, Kathy's dad, Reverend Owen Hollingsworth, was the pastor here at First Baptist Church in the 70s. And so she was a PK here. And this kid showed up and was teaching high school and coaching and leading young life here in Kirk County, right? And met Kathy and the rest is history. And here we are. 40-some years later. How, many, how long have you guys been married? 43 years. Congratulations. That's great. Well, it's been an interesting week for me. Um, if you haven't heard, I uh, got in a bike accident on Tuesday. I, right after work, I left, got on my mountain bike, rode over to the lower 66. I shouldn't even be using this arm. Um, rode over to the lower 66, and after about an hour ride, was coming down to the very bottom and went over a little jump that I shouldn't have been going over and went over the handlebars and landed on my shoulder in my head. And when I walked into the ER, the PA that was there looked at my shoulder and she's like, oh, I know exactly what happened to you. 
and it was a shoulder separation. So I tore a little ligament there that holds my collarbone to my shoulder. So my collarbone is just gonna stick up for the rest of my life, basically. Right there, fun little trick, click, 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 click thing. Um, so it's fun. And I'm sitting there and the, the PA and the nurse are talking to me and they're like, this is like the most common mountain biking accident. We see it all the time. All the hardcore mountain bikers have had this accident. And I look at them and I'm like, I am not a hardcore mountain biker. <laughs> Simon, they, they both looked at me at the same time and they said, well, now you are. <laughs> you know? So I guess I'm in the hardcore mountain biking family. I'm going to sell my mountain bike. Uh, we'll see. Anyway, that was fun. Changing the subject, though. I'm going to keep my hand in my pocket. So it hurts when I move it. Okay. Um, anybody like me grow up in Oregon in the early 1980s? Anybody, am I dating myself here? Okay, so a few of you might understand what I'm talking about here, but if you grew up in Oregon in the early 1980s, and there's a, there's a few other spots within the United States that might be familiar with this as well, but there was a public service announcement that was often played on TV, either in the mornings, like when we were watching Ramblin' Rod. Anybody remember Ramblin' Rod in the early, okay. In the early 80s, the cartoons in the morning before, before you went to school, or in the afternoons, you come back for the after-school programs. There was this particular PSA. It was a little jingle that has been stuck in my head for 40 years, and it was entitled, this really fantastic name, The Hepatitis Song. Does anybody remember The Hepatitis Song? Okay, you'll sing it with me in just a second, okay? I should actually get you up. You probably play it on your guitar and sing along with us. Uh, apparently, there was an outbreak of hepatitis A in Oregon and in some other places in the United States in the early 80s. So they used this PSA, this little jingle, to remind people and teach people the importance of washing your hands. Um, and so I'd wager that one of the reasons I'm so religious about washing my hands now is because I can't get this stupid song out of my head. It's still in there. You guys ready? Okay. If you remember it, maybe sing along with the chorus with me, okay? I, I want to hear you loud and proud. Wash your hands after going to the bathroom. Louder. Wash your hands after changing babies too. Because we don't want to spread hepatitis. And we don't want hepatitis to catch you. Who? There we go. Yes. All right. Now, you cannot find that original video on YouTube anywhere. I think there's like two VHS copies of it in somebody's locker in Arizona or something like that. Um, but you can find a few people who've redone the song and they play it on YouTube. So if you want to go listen to it, please do. Now, since the mid-1850s and the discoveries of men like Louis Pasteur and others around the idea of germ theory, we've come to know and be aware of germs and the health risks that some germs pose to us, right? That's why we wash our hands. That's why... We sanitize things. That's why we, when you go into the OR, you hope that everything's sanitized before they cut into your body. And so when we think about washing our hands, we don't necessarily think about it as a religious ritual, even though some people, like myself, can be very religious about how often and how much they wash their hands. We usually think about it as in terms of health and hygiene, right? We don't think of it in terms of, of religion. And so when when these religious leaders in Matthew 15 come to Jesus and ask him a question and come with this critique about his disciples not washing their hands, it kind of befuddles us a little bit. We're like, okay, it's kind of gross, but, you know, wash your hands before eating a meal, but 
let's not kick them out of Israel because they haven't washed their hands. But today, what we want to do is, we, we looked at verses 1 through 9 last week in chapter 15, and really talked about this idea of authority. Where does your authority come from? Today, I want to address and, and really look a little bit more deep, deeply, like Jesus does, at this idea of purity. We saw that hand-washing last week was one of these many traditions of the elders that had been handed down over centuries by different rabbis, and these different collections of teachings They were handed down through the generations, and they were even taken as authoritative teachings, authoritative interpretations of the Torah. And the Torah was basically the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. Torah can mean teaching or law or instruction. So these traditions were an intricate part of the fabric that really made up uh, the, the social values and the cultural mores of first century Jews who were living in Palestine at the time. So, so to even attempt to understand what was behind this critique, your, your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat, to understand what was behind this critique and why Jesus' response was so scandalous, we need to understand two key distinctions. And the two are distinction between clean and unclean, clean and unclean, and the second distinction is between holy and common, the holy and the common, and we'll go through these in, in the next few minutes. See, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, they were considered kind of the guardians of God's word. They were the, the official keepers and the interpreters of the Torah, and their purity laws were interpretations and really real-life applications of the Torah. So what they were trying to do is they were trying and intending to help the Jewish people to obey God's law even in the smallest details of daily life. So they had these very small rules, just about anything you could do, especially like around the Sabbath day or around food or different kinds of things. Because the importance of the Torah, the importance of God's law went well beyond uh, just social or liturgical practices or worship practices. It actually went down to the very core of, the, of your identity as a Jewish person, your identity as the people of God. Because the Jews were God's covenant people, Yahweh's covenant people. And because of that, they were to be a holy people. The word holy, the primary meaning of the word holy is to be set apart or separate or other. And they were to be set apart and separate from the rest of the world. And this became more and more difficult in the culture with which they lived in, in which Hellenism, which was the culture of ancient Greece and which was spread throughout the world by the Greek Empire and then following that, the Roman Empire, was spreading throughout the world. And because they were subject to the Empire of Rome, they were subject to this Hellenistic culture, which was a foreign culture that was constantly threatening to either annihilate or assimilate the Jewish people. Okay, so there's this culture that's pressing on them from all sides to annihilate them, get rid of them, or assimilate them into their culture, which would cause them to lose their status as God's people, their identity as God's unique, separate people. So these concepts of purity or of cleanness and holiness were important because they allowed the Jewish people to draw direct lines around themselves to distinguish themselves from the rest of the world. Are you with me so far? A lot of history here, but we want to understand these concepts. 
So the lines of separation were drawn primarily based on the distinction between what was holy and what was common. Okay, so most ordinary things were considered common. As one scholarly source puts it, they are ordinary spaces and things of the world that are accessible to human beings. And if you like charts, I made a chart today. So you've got a diff the difference between common and holy. Most ordinary things are considered common. They're just regular, normal things. Now, things that are considered common aren't necessarily bad. They're, they're neutral. They're not, they're not good or bad. They're, they're, they're neutral. Holy, on the other hand, refers to, to, quote, special spaces or things that have been set apart from the ordinary or the common as belonging in some special way to God. That's what holy meant, that it belonged in a special way to God. So, for instance, though the Israelites were holy to Yahweh, all the Israelites were holy, they were set apart to Yahweh, the normal Israelite most of the time fell into the category of being common. However, if you were a priest, if you were a descendant of, of Levi and specifically a descendant of, of Aaron and you were richly cleansed, you'd gone through all these cleansing uh, purification rituals, you were considered holy, set apart for God's service. Most food on the left hand or on the right hand side there is considered if it was kosher was considered to be common. But if you took an animal and you offered it as sacrifice, you took some grain to the temple and you offered it as an offering to God, that offering would be considered holy. And the, the portions of that offering that the, the priests got to eat were considered holy food. Most places in Israel were considered common, but Jerusalem. And even more so, the temple within Jer Jerusalem, the temple precincts, were considered holy. The temple itself had different areas that were even more holy than other areas. So there's this kind of hierarchy of holiness within the understanding of the Jewish mind. According to the Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels, quote, the law of Moses, the Torah, essentially was instruction about how to live as a holy nation in the presence of of a holy God. So we have holy in common. Now the question is, how in the world do we live in God's presence and in, in his holy presence? And so come the purity laws, or the, the laws that have to do with cleanness and uncleanness. And these are to teach the people how to live with Yahweh and how to protect what was holy. Just like Leviticus 10, chapter, verse 10 says, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. This was really the job of the priest, to teach the people what was holy, what was common, what was clean, and what was unclean. Now, like common, holy and common, like common, clean is a neutral term, and it refers to a person or a thing in its normal, proper state. So here we have things that are common and clean on the left-hand side there. Most Israelites... Etc. Ritually clean priests were holy. Unclean, uncleanness, though, denotes that something has crossed the line from the normal state into a dangerous state of pollution. So you go down to the bottom of this chart now, and you have things that are common yet unclean. It's important to recognize that unclean is not necessarily sinful. They're not synonyms. Unclean does not mean sinful. It just is a state of, a dangerous state of pollution. Unclean things or people were not to have con contact with and thus pollute the holy. So 
Israelite, um, Israelites who had been made unclean by maybe attending a funeral, right? They had to attend to a dead body. They were unclean for a time, so they had to be clean, cleaned or cleansed before they could approach God again. If you contracted a skin disease like leprosy, or if you were a woman and you were having your monthly period, you could not approach the tabernacle because you were unclean. And non-Jews, or what were known as Gentiles, were always considered unclean. Anybody in here a Gentile? Okay. So we know that we are unclean. Now consider this quotation from the extra-canonical, and what I mean by that is it's, not, it's a writing from the 2nd century B.C. that came between the two testaments, but it's, we don't consider it as part of the inspired word of God. It's called the Book of Jubilees, and it says this in chapter 22, verse 16. And this would have been something that Jews in the first century in Jesus' day would have uh, been very familiar with. It says, separate yourselves from the nations and eat not with them. The nations are Gentiles, the non-Jews. And do not do according to their works and become not their associates. For all their works are unclean, and all their ways are a pollution and an abomination and an uncleanness. So by Jesus' day, those who championed strict purity laws were using them to create distinctions between who was holy and who wasn't. You see the shift there? They're not just saying who's clean, but who is holy and who wasn't. The goal for them was not to fall into this category. Don't go there. Don't become unclean. Stay as clean as you possibly can. And keep those unclean things away from God. In fact, let's draw a line around those things. Let's quarantine those things and stay away from them, lest somehow they pollute the holy. And ceremonial hand-washing before a meal was a part of this whole rubric, meant to prevent, it was just kind of funny to even think about it, but meant to prevent secondary pollution. In other words, I may have touched something since the last time I washed that was, un, that was unclean. I may have touched some kind of unclean food or unclean animal or someone that was unclean and not even know about it. So just in case, before every meal, I'm going to wash ceremonially. You guys remember the story of Jesus turning water into wine and all those big vats of water that were there? That's what they were there for, so people could come and clean themselves before the meal ceremonially to ceremonially be clean. The secondary pollution then was, like, if I touch something unclean, then I get it on the food I eat, then I ingest it, then all of a sudden, guess what? I'm unclean. Now, Jesus, if you know the ways of Jesus, if you're familiar with Jesus and his heart and his teachings, you should be able to begin discerning exactly where he might be getting agitated by all this. Listen to what he says in verse 12. The disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? You, know, you ticked them off, Jesus, when you, said, when you said this. And what he had just said, is he called the crowds to him, and he said, look, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. The Pharisees are ticked at you. You've offended them when they heard this saying. And he answered, enigmatically as he usually does, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. 
The word that's translated as offended, the Greek word here, is the word scandalizo. Do you hear an English word in there? Scandal, scandalous, scandalized, scandalizo. And the, and the, the noun scandalon literally refers to a stumbling block or an obstacle. Okay, on Tuesday afternoon, I hit a scandalon and I went over my handlebars. I hit a, a, an obstacle, a stumbling block. It made me wreck. Or I wrecked, I wrecked myself. It didn't make me wreck. This is the same word that is used, scandalon, it's the same word that's used by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.23 when he says, he's referring to the effects of the preached gospel on unbelieving Jews. He says this, we preach Christ crucified a scandalon, a stumbling block to Jews. So here, here we have what Paul is saying in real time. Right? Jesus is preaching a gospel of grace and the Jews are stumbling over it. And whenever the gospel of, gra- of God's grace is preached, the very gospel that culminates with Jesus himself purchasing forgiveness for sinners by hanging on a Roman cross, the religious Jewish mind, the religious mind is scandalized because the implications of this gospel are too much for them because they've worked too hard, they've worked for too long to keep themselves pure so that God will continue accepting them. That may ring true in your own heart and mind and life. How hard and long have you worked to make sure that God would accept you? It's exhausting, isn't it? And the gospel of grace is scandalous. See, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's redefining the lines of who is in and who is out with God based on grace, not on works. And when that's preached, when that's proclaimed, when that's taught, some have ears to hear and others do not. Some have eyes to see, but others are blind. And shockingly, when it comes down to it, it's the serious religious people, those, those who won't let go of their own rules, those are the ones who are left on the outside. And if you've been paying attention through our study of the book of Matthew, you probably hear some echoes of what was preached earlier this summer of Matthew chapter 13 and Jesus' words, in particular, the parable of the weeds, or you might know it as the parable of the wheat and the tares. You guys remember this parable? So a farmer goes out and he sows all this good seed in his field, and then at nighttime, his enemy comes and sows seed into the same field, and he doesn't realize until that wheat, or excuse me, uh, weeds into that same field. He doesn't realize it until the weeds start growing and his servants come to him and say, what are we going to do? Should we go pull the weeds? And he said, no, just leave the weeds. Let them grow because I don't want you to injure the wheat, the good seed. Just let it grow. And at the end, the harvesters will come. They'll harvest it and then they'll separate it out. And the weeds, they'll bundle up and they'll throw into the fire. And Jesus explained this parable to his disciples and he identified himself as the farmer and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And naturally, you would think if a Pharisee were to overhear him explaining this parable, they say, oh, the good seed, the sons of the kingdom, that's us. That's us. We're Pharisees. We're the sons of the kingdom. But no, Jesus makes it clear right here in chapter 15 that they are actually the weeds. They're actually what he goes to call the sons of the devil, the sons of the evil one, and their judgment is coming. Here's what he says, verse 13. Every plant that was not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted. And this is a heavy three words. Let them be. 
heavy. Let them be. Let the weeds be. God will deal with them in the end. Don't entrust yourself to them. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. Let them be. Jesus then goes on to call them blind guides, literally blind leaders of the blind, which is kind of a humorous metaphor because from personal experience, I know how stubborn blind people can be. My dad was legally blind. And whenever he and I would go anywhere, I would guide him. I have my sight. I can see where we're going. So I'd drive somewhere and get out of the car and I'd go and I'd stand in front of him and he would come to my right side and with his left arm, he would grab my right arm and we would walk. And it worked pretty well because I could guide him where we needed to go. But he was actually quite capable of getting around on his own with a cane around town and many of you would see him around. But even then, he wasn't always completely safe from people backing into him with their cars. I won't say who that was. But it was, a, it, was a, it was a whole different world for him, though, when a person with sight could guide him. Yet, even though he was blind, I was constantly amazed at how often Dad would be convinced that I was completely mistaken about something that I was literally looking at right at the moment. It's like, well, here's what it is, and describe it to him and tell him what's going on. It's like, yeah, I don't think so. I'm like, Oh, okay, I'm, I can see it, you can't, but so one of the most dangerous things in the world is a stubborn blind person who thinks that he can see, leading another blind person who trusts that their guide knows what they're doing, knows where they're going. And Jesus is basically telling his disciples in the crowds, you know the religious leaders, the teachers of Israel? Let them be. They don't know where they're going. Even a broken clock is correct twice a day, and sometimes two blind people can get where they're going, but most often they're going to end up in the ditch. And Jesus is okay with writing off the Pharisees. They've chosen their blindness, and he leaves them to it. He didn't, he didn't come to rescue stubborn blind people. He came to rescue those who knew that they needed help. And so what Jesus is going to do is to relocate now purity and holiness. So we'll look at verses 10 and 11 and then skip down to verse 15 if you're following along. It says, He called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. In verse 15. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. And in saying this, Jesus really, what he's doing is he's creating a seismic shift in the location of purity. The purity laws located impurity as a threat that comes from outside of a person, even from outside of a people. So wall yourself off from uncleanness, and let's wall us off, Jews, Israel, let's wall us off from the rest of the unclean world. So we create laws, with the, or purity laws, that wall us off and protect us from this impurity from outside. But Jesus relocates purity to the inside of a person. Purity and defilement come 
not from outside, but from the heart. This isn't new. Jesus has been talking about this at least since chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount is all about what it looks like to follow God from the heart. And Jesus offers himself as the alternative teacher of Israel. The, the Pharisees, blind guides. I'm the teacher of Israel. So I love this in verse 10. He actually, it says he calls the crowd to himself. He's finished answering the Pharisees. And he calls the crowd to himself because he knows that the crowd are, are lost and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion on them. He knows they're following these, these blind teachers and he wants to teach them. So he first calls to them and he offers them the truth. He is no blind guide. He tells them the truth and offers them freedom in the gospel. Then he has to turn to his disciples and explain that uncleanness doesn't come by placing things into your mouth. Because what you place in your mouth is, is physical, right? It's going to go into your, into your mouth, into your stomach, and then literally what the Greek says, it goes out into the latrine. In other words, he says you're going to flush it down the toilet. That's where it goes. It goes nowhere else. The real issue, though, is the heart, the inner being. For it's from the heart that we either keep or break the Torah. It's from the heart that we either follow or turn away from God. It's from the heart that we obey him or disobey him. You notice that the examples he gives in verse 19, none of these come from the quote-unquote tradition of the elders. The, the examples that he gives come straight out of Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Evil thoughts, murder, Commandment number six. Adultery, commandment number seven. Sexual immorality, commandment number seven. Theft, commandment number eight. False witness and slander, commandment number nine. He's saying all the, all the breaking of God's law, it comes out of your heart. And you remember that some of these are the examples that Jesus used back in the Sermon on the Mount to illustrate this very point. That it's not merely sinful actions that break God's law. It's the thoughts and intentions of sinful hearts First, you don't have to kill someone to commit murder. Just be angry with them. You don't have to sleep with somebody to commit adultery. Just lust after them. See, Jesus always returns us to the centrality of our hearts because it's from our hearts that our life flows. From our hearts come either cleanness or uncleanness. So Jesus completely reorients and shifts the conversation. He now moves it in a totally different direction. And in so doing, he's completely shaking up the religious world of the Pharisees, even causing them to be scandalized by what he is teaching the people, so much so that he will eventually be killed for it. Eating with unwashed hands, even unclean food, is never going to cause you to break the Torah, and it's never going to get you in favor with God or get you out of favor with God. Only your heart can do that, which leaves us with kind of a conundrum, but with hope because Jesus is the one who cleans and makes holy. Instead of being threatened by uncleanness, Jesus seemed to see it as his mission to go and be with unclean people. These are the people here. He'd walk up to dead bodies and touch them and return them to life. He'd walk up to lepers who were considered unclean, untouchable, and he would touch them and cleanse them and heal them. A woman who was bleeding for 12 years, unclean for 12 years, not able to approach the temple of God in worship for 12 years, he touched her. She touched him first. 
He wasn't afraid of her uncleanness. As we'll see next week, Jesus wasn't even afraid of Gentiles. Matt's going to talk about the Canaanite woman next week. He went to cemeteries. Cemeteries were unclean places. You didn't go there unless you had, to, had a burial to do. He went there to meet a man who was possessed by a legion of demons. What did he do to him? Cast out the demons. Cleansed him. Jesus is constantly trying to get those people here. He's constantly trying to take the unclean and bring them into the holy presence of God. So how does one then attain a clean and holy heart? The answer is through Christ alone. This was his mission. And this was his work to make the unclean holy. And over and over again, Jesus broke these barriers as we saw. And he was not intent on drawing a circle around himself, the most holy human who's ever lived, drawing a circle around himself and keeping everybody out. He knew that his holy, that uncleanness was no match for his holiness. So every unclean place he went, he brought holiness. He brought cleanness. And friends, this is the scandal of the gospel. Jesus comes into our uncleanness. He comes into our pollution, our defilement, our sin. He takes what is broken. He takes what has been cast aside, and he puts it back together again. So for those of us, I'm going to say all of us, who fall outside the lines, remember that line, that square line? Don't be here. For us, there's hope. We are all, for one reason or another, in that box. But in Christ, there is hope. There's hope for you. There's hope for me. Why? Because Jesus is on a mission of transforming hearts. He's not interested in first transforming our outward behavior. He goes after our hearts. He doesn't start with behavior. He changes the inside first. He aims directly at changing our hearts. He doesn't expect us to be perfect or clean or pure or holy to come to him. Jesus only accepts sinners. 1 John chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to what? Cleanse. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. So what's the move? What's the move for us? And I think the, move, the only move for us today is a move, well, I guess you can pick one of two. You can move towards Christ or you can move away from Christ. We can confess our sin. We can humbly ask for forgiveness and we can receive his grace. And this is indeed what we do when we remember and when we celebrate the communion table, the Lord's Supper. So you can come to Jesus this morning. If you're a follower of Christ especially, this is a time for us to be reminded of our desperate need, our desperate brokenness, our desperate uncleanness without Christ. And by faith, we come to Christ. We put our faith in his sacrifice on our behalf. He died on our behalf to pay for our sins and to, to purchase for us forgiveness and cleansing and holiness. And the scriptures tell us that in Christ, we are now holy. We're holy ones. We're saints, all because of his work. And if that describes you, if you're one who've 
Just put your faith in Christ and know desperately that you need him. I invite you to come, whether you're a member here or not, if you're a visitor, if you've been here for years, come and partake of of the communion table. We're gonna sing a few songs while we do that, and you can come by yourself, or you can come with others and take the elements. There's also a couple of stations in the back that, that you can use. But this morning, if that doesn't describe you, if you wouldn't say you are one who has put your faith in Jesus, if you, if you wouldn't say you're one that's come to him, but maybe you're turning and walking the other way, or maybe you're just here kind of exploring and you don't really know for sure where you're at with Jesus, I wanna say, first of all, that we are glad that you're here this morning. We're grateful you've come and that you're in our midst. We hope you feel welcome. We hope you feel loved this morning. But this is the one time of the service that we're just going to ask you to abstain and, and not participate in this because this really is a family meal. It's a reminder of the gospel. And take part of it when you don't really believe that would, would really just to be kind of to disdain it. So we'd ask you to just sing with us, observe, listen. We'd love to talk with you about anything you've heard or any questions you have this morning. But with that, I would ask um, for you to come. If you're a follower of Jesus, come to Jesus, receive his grace once again. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are grateful that, well, I guess we, we know and we confess that we cannot do enough to make you love us more. We cannot do, do enough to cause you to accept us, and any rules that we create or try to live by are, are not going to do anything in the ultimate scheme of things. Not going to change anything in the balance books, Lord. We all deserve the punishment our sins deserve. And yet for Jesus, it's only in Christ that we can come to you in faith, Father, and know that we are loved as children. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God. And so we come to Christ today and we are so grateful. We're so grateful for the gift of forgiveness that you purchased for us. We're so grateful that you have come to cleanse us who are, by definition, unclean. You've come to make us clean. You've come to make us whole. You are doing that work in us. Lord, it's so good to see our brothers and sisters in the body just, just knowing that you're doing that work each and every day in our hearts. So Lord, with our hearts, we come and worship you today, and with our hearts, we want to leave this place in praise and in worship of you as we go about our days this week, Lord, going into unclean places to bring your holiness and your gospel, a gospel of grace that scandalizes. Lord, may we be rocked by the reality of your gospel and changed by it today. May you be exalted and honored in your name. Amen.